Thank you for listening to Taken by the Sea by John Rosetta. This is the adventure of William Harris, a true story of a journey across the globe by one of the founding fathers of the world's smallest republic. We are proud to present this podcast to you, and we hope you'll follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Please rate us on your podcast platform of choice if you enjoy these episodes. And now we begin with Chapter 3, My Mark on the World, Part 2. He was being serious, and understandably so. It was a rare opportunity to get the attention of such an established figure. This was the game-changer we needed to turn around our fortunes. Marcus had arranged a time the following week for my encounter with the Duke at his London residence, Apsley House. For a moment, albeit a brief moment, I did consider giving the assignment to one of our writers. I expected Marcus's resistance to the idea, and in retrospect, I was perhaps a bit selfish in my desire for the opportunity. I had confidence in my abilities to do the story justice, and the opportunity to meet the man who sent Napoleon into exile was simply too much to pass up. I hardly ever get overwhelmed by meeting people of such stature. However, in the days leading up to our meeting, I found myself giddy with anticipation. I find this side of you quite amusing. Mary told me at dinner one night. But I think I'll be happy when you return to your senses. If I had been more self-aware at that time, I would have agreed with her. In order to present myself in a respectable way and to calm my nerves, I researched as much as I could about the Duke. Everyone had heard of him, of course. After he defeated Napoleon Bonaparte at Waterloo, he had decided to exchange his sword for a seat in the House of Lords. With a reputation and standing that everyone wanted to take advantage of, he rose quickly within the ranks of the Conservative Party and became Prime Minister several years ago, in a shockingly little amount of time. His peers and some members of the public called him the Iron Duke, perhaps out of fear of calling him anything else. He was the epitome and embodiment of the strong, silent and steadfast traditional Englishman. He had his finer points, which did their best to outshine some of the major tarnishes on his record. Arthur had been caught on the wrong side of history on more than one occasion. Most notably, he had been very much against the expansion of voting rights, which now allowed simple landowners like myself to have a say in our nation's representations. He had been successful, however, in countless legislation, limiting the rights of minorities and those of alternative lifestyles which he saw as having no place in English society. While I was planning on asking him questions regarding some of these choices and stances, the controversial bill regarding the abolition of slavery would be my focus. As many were predicting he would become Prime Minister again in the year ahead, I was fully expecting that he would provide me with only answers that he wanted me to hear. I was determined not to let that happen. On the morning of my audience with the Duke of Wellington, I decided to take a stroll from Buckingham Palace through the park to Apsley House. It was quite a prestigious location, especially for a private estate. My best guess was that the king had given him the land at some point, one of the many gifts one receives when saving the country from a tyrannical Frenchman with a large hat, I imagined. As I finally reached his house, the gravity of the situation was still weighing upon me. I had decided on the walk, with the intent of calming my nerves. This had been unsuccessful. I was greeted at his door by a tired-looking man in a red coat, who proceeded to hand my hat and jacket to a younger man by his side. He was not unkind, but rather formulaic in his movements, as he led me into the great hall. From the outside, Apsley House looked like an offspring of the palace. Smaller, of course, but with the same facade and intentional forbearance. 
The inside was just as impressive as any estate I had ever seen. Framed paintings, some recognizable, adorned the fabric-lined walls from floor to ceiling. The floors were a more impressive version of the mahogany that I used to have in my carriage, and the ceilings were embroidered with gold leaf trimmings wherever your eyes were drawn. Oddly, the house was only sparsely populated with furniture, perhaps to highlight the other attributes of the residence. As I paced, waiting in the great hall, I knew his intention was to impress me, or even intimidate me by way of the surroundings. Instead, my thoughts drifted to my father and how proud he would be. His son, an aimless academic, was now about to meet the Duke of Wellington, a legend of his time and a pillar of modern British society and culture. No matter how this went, I knew he would be proud. I was teetering on the brink of uncomfortable sentimentality when the large doors in front of me opened. His lordship awaits you. I was informed while being ushered into a much darker room. As I entered, I didn't see him at first, and began to assume I was meant to wait again. This was his library, or perhaps a study of some kind. Countless books filled the surrounding shelves of dark wood on three of the four walls. To my left was a wall dominated by three large windows, and that was where I found the Iron Duke gazing out upon the country he had saved. He was a tall, thin man, handsome and gallant in his own way. Well into his sixties, his long-drawn face, grey and black hair and piercing eyes, emitted the energy of someone far younger. What struck me almost immediately was his unspoken air of stoicism that seemed to emanate from him. I recognised that this could have been a manifestation of my own perceptions about him, but it struck me all the same. So you're the young Mr. Harris that I've been hearing so much about? He finally spoke while examining me from head to toe. Marcus Fleet has spoken very highly of you. It's an honour to meet you, sir, I told him nervously. Well, for a man of your position, I suppose it would be. The Duke said a bit caustically as he sat down. He motioned for me to do the same, and I got the feeling all at once that the interview had begun. Have you ever had the chance to read my paper? There was a bit of tension in the air, and he seemed very used to it. I'm afraid not, he said quickly. Not much time for such things these days. There was certainly an apprehension in his tone. Perhaps he wasn't used to giving such interviews or that my attempts at casual conversation were simply an annoyance to him. I decided to press on. Before we get started, I'd just like to thank you for your role in the Reformation Acts. I'm very much looking forward to voting for the first time in the upcoming election. He shifted in his chair and seemed to examine me again with his sharp eyes. Yes, well... He paused. A product of societal pressures, of which I had no part in, I can assure you. My role from his perspective was becoming a bit more clear. For the first time, men with the stature of Arthur Wellesley now had to appease lowly landowners such as myself in order to hold on to power. This was an inconvenience that he no doubt resented, and my presence there on that day was in many ways the personification of that annoyance. For aristocrats who had lived their lives in a state of unchecked authority, this must have been nothing short of intolerable. We continued on over the next half hour, discussing a number of minor talking points that I knew our readers would be interested in. The Duke did all he could to bring the conversation back to his lofty military achievements and a favourable interpretation of his political record. Of course, I knew that this needed to be part of the article I would write, but everyone in Britain and the world already knew of his record. 
Very few knew his views on the pressing issues of the day. It was around that time that we finally began to discuss the most important debate of our time, the proposed abolition of slavery in the United Kingdom and its ongoing role in the slave trade. Public opinion varied widely on this topic, and it was soon expected that the House of Commons and the House of Lords would soon vote on the subject. The possible outcome of that vote was a mystery, even to someone as knowledgeable as myself. The Duke's position would carry a great deal of weight on any debate within those chambers. There is likely to be a vote on the abolition of slavery in the United Kingdom in the coming days. Would you mind sharing your position on this? How are you likely to vote? I believe my position on this is well known, he muttered dismissively. I was more than a bit surprised by his answer. Clearly I couldn't let him off that easily. Not to me, I'm afraid. Not to my readers. Over the course of our conversation he had shown very little hesitation. He did now. My stance stems from the belief that the British race is the supreme race on the face of the earth. A line he was proud to say. We have conquered the world, become masters of science and industry, and defeated the substantial forces of inferior cultures. This world is ours and we should do with it as we like, including the buying and selling of human beings. I was becoming emotional, letting my personal opinions leak through my facade of objectivity. He did not seem to notice. I repeat, our nation has earned the right to rule this world, and that includes the people of this world and their management should always be considered with the continued prosperity of the empire in mind. He spoke to me as casually as one would discuss the weather. Never had the word management been the embodiment of so much inhumanity. Mr. Harris, I ask you to make this perfectly clear to your readers. The Duke interrupted my thoughts. May I rely on you to do so? In my short time in publishing, I had been forced on occasion to print words that screamed with objection. I could tell this would be the latest occurrence of this occupational hazard. Certainly, sir, I responded. You have my word. Good. Excellent. He seemed pleased for the first time in our conversation. Young man, in time you'll realise that if we begin to negotiate on matters such as these we'll begin to lose what defines us as a great people. Those who have achieved the supremacy that we have should never, never negotiate. I found my focus drifting after that extended exchange. We discussed a few minor topics, and I had planned to cover a few more. When the Duke suddenly stood up and made it very clear that he was done with me, he did extend the courtesy of shaking my hand, which he had declined to do at the start of our conversation. I look forward to reading the article, Mr. Harris. He said while walking away from me. I didn't reply, mostly because I didn't have anything on my tongue that would be appropriate for his ears. As I was escorted to the street and began to make my way out of the city, I was in a mental state that could only be described as a lesser form of shock. I had mentally prepared myself for some level of circumstantial philosophical disagreements with the Duke of Wellington. He was a man of privilege and of a different time, which naturally would lend himself to perspectives and opinions that would differ from my own. However, I had just sat down with someone that I disagreed with fundamentally, in a profound way that I was not expecting. His beliefs regarding the treatment of human beings appalled me above all else. He clearly only considered a small group of people to be his equal on an elemental level. In my heart, 
I believed that I, with my modest background, was also in his view, not worthy of his time and consideration. My carriage was nearly home when I decided to first stop at the office. I knew Mary would be waiting to hear about my time with the Duke at home, but I thought it might be best to compose my thoughts about the experience as they were still fresh in my mind. As I marched up the stairs, I could see a moving shadow in the office doorway. The element of surprise was wasted on me. There was only one person it could be. When I walked through the door, it looked as though Marcus had already drank at least two whiskies. Ah, to the conquering hero. He raised his glass. Wellington at Waterloo is nothing compared to Harris at Apsley. Enough. Enough. I surrendered into one of the chairs. It's been a long day. I'll wager it has. He smiled. So what did the old bugger have to say for himself? I took a moment to decide on the appropriate level of honesty required in this situation. Marcus had gone out on a limb to get me this opportunity, and I didn't want to appear ungrateful. That being said, he was my partner, and deserved to know the truth, and nothing but the truth. Additionally, I had a feeling that my demeanour had already undermined any attempt at deception. I never imagined I would meet such an utter ass, I proclaimed. The entire ride home I debated whether success breeds toxicity, or if toxicity is required for success. Marcus couldn't help but laugh. Sounds like the old man was in good form today. I proceeded to recount my conversation with the Duke in as much detail as possible. I omitted nothing, aside from the momentary break in my facade. When I finished, his smile had been replaced with the look of deep concern. He thinks that anyone below him deserves to be treated like animals. It was deplorable, Marcus. There was a look on his face that I couldn't quite understand. Of all the emotions this might have been, surprise wasn't one of them. You can't publish this will, he said. Parliament will be passing the abolition bill within the next week. It's what this country wants, and if the Duke is caught on the wrong side of this, it could cost him the premiership. Perhaps it should. I threw my hands in the air. Relics like him have been holding us back for far too long. Why shouldn't the public know the truth? He shook his head once more. Truth is reserved for those who can afford it. You can't afford it. I was about to interrupt when he decided on continuing the lecture. You don't want to be on the wrong side of someone like that. Even I don't know what he's capable of. There was no convincing him otherwise. I decided to stop trying. I understand. I hate it too. But you can still write the article. Just be smart about it. Leave out anything that might blow up in your face. I agreed and we shared a drink to calm our nerves. You're a good man, Marcus. I told him as we walked outside to go our separate ways. I appreciate your advice, as always, even when I bloody hate it. He smiled and decided to embrace me, which was a rare thing for us. You're a good man, William. Marcus laughed. And you'll have plenty of other opportunities to do something stupid, I can assure you. As he walked off, a sense of sadness crept over me. I wasn't sure why, and I didn't have time to give it much thought. Mary had been expecting me and I was already late. The sun was setting, as my carriage finally arrived home. Mary was waiting for me on the front steps for the first time in memory. I assumed she was upset with me, but if that was the case, she did not show it. What happened? Mary asked no doubt because of the expression on my face. Were you able to meet with him, or did he throw you out on the street? I allowed myself a short laugh. 
If only he had. It might have been for the best. She put her hand on my shoulder and took me inside. We sat next to each other in the parlour, and I recounted the events of the day, including my conversation with Marcus. When I had finished, she decided to take the first sip of her tea, which by then had become cold. Marcus be damned, Mary proclaimed. Don't you dare listen to him. He's right, Mary. If I cross the Duke, there's no telling what might happen. William, she said sternly. This is your time, your moment to stand up for what's right and make your mark on this world. I sighed, grabbed my tea, stared at the cup, but didn't drink. I'm just not sure, I admitted. Will, this is your chance to do what Napoleon couldn't. Expose Arthur Wellesley for the fraud that he is. This is your moment. I can't recall all of the thoughts that ran through my head that night, and I wouldn't subject them to you in any case. What I do remember, and can't forget, are all the words Mary said to me that evening. As I stared at her, through the bars in my cell, those words were all I could think about. There was not much I wouldn't give to have gone back to that moment. When you're facing the end, there are moments that haunt you as a reminder that we're all the cause of our own suffering. With so little time left, regrets were no good to me. There was so much sorrow as she looked back at me, reminding me that only fools try to make their mark on this world. Thank you for listening to Taken by the Sea. If you are enjoying the episodes, please rate us highly on your podcast platform of choice. If you have questions for the author, John Rosetta, please send them through Facebook or Instagram, and we'll do our best to include them in future shows. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to bringing you more of the story in the weeks ahead.